You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Professor Carloran Phillips. Professor Phillips is Union Pacific Professor Emerita in Comparative Early Modern History at the University of Minnesota. Following retirement after 44 years at the University of Minnesota, she moved to Central Texas, where she's an adjunct member of the History Department at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also associated with the San Diego Maritime Museum and the University of California in San Diego. Throughout her career, her research has focused on the economic, social and maritime history of Spain in the early modern period. She has published a significant number of books, articles and book chapters, including Six Galleons for the King of Spain, Imperial Defence in the Early 17th Century, published in 1986, The World of Christopher Columbus, co-authored with uh, Professor William D. Phillips, and A Treasure of the San Jose, Death at Sea in the War of the Spanish Succession. She has also translated a number of works into English, including Pablo Emilio Pérez Maínas, Spain's Men of the Sea, The Daily Life of Cruz on the Indies Fleet in the 16th Century, as well as her latest work, The Struggle for the South Atlantic, The Armada of the Strait, 1581-1584, published for the Hackloid Society in 2016. She has been the recipient of many awards and honours, including the Royal Order of Isabel the Catholic, conferred by King Juan Carlos of Spain in 2008. She is a corresponding member of the Spanish Royal Academy of History, and in 2013, she was elected Fellow of the Society for the History of Discoveries. Professor Phillips, Carla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. The Spanish Armada sailed for the Straits of Magellan under Don Diego Flores de Valdez in 1581 and came at a crucial juncture in global politics. Philip II of Spain had assumed the crown of Portugal and its overseas empire, and Francis Drake's daring peacetime raids had challenged the dominance of Spain and Portugal in the Americas. The Armada was intended to ensure the loyalty of Portuguese Brazil, bolster its defences against hostile native peoples and English and French pirates and interlopers, and to fortify and settle the Strait of Magellan to prevent further incursions into the Pacific. Previous accounts of the Armada of the Strait have largely reflected the writings of Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, governor-designate of the planned colony at the Strait, who blamed all the misfortunes of the enterprise on Diego Flores de Valdez. But Professor Phillips's recent edition of Pedro de Rada's account presents a very different version of the expedition, which challenged long-standing conclusions regarding the place of Sarmiento and Flores in Spanish history and the accomplishments of a long-forgotten armada sent into the terrifying waters of the South Atlantic. So, Professor Phillips, before we actually talk about this armada of the Strait in the 1580s, is it possible to give us an overview of Spanish exploration and settlement in the South Atlantic region of America, that is, the region around the River Plate, the Straits of Magellan, and so on, up to the 1580s? It's certainly possible. I don't know how, how possible it is to be very brief, because everything was connected. Uh, the decisions made in Madrid, for example, the decisions made in Seville, had to take the whole of what Spain claimed in the Americas um, as a piece. Uh, it, it was not separated out the way we tend to do. But it's important to remember that early on in, in Atlantic exploration, every voyage that sailed toward the West was trying to find the extent of the islands in the landmass that Columbus had discovered. Was the land part of Asia, as Columbus believed? Was it connected to Asia? Was it a separate land altogether? Nothing was clear in those early days. And all of the voyages that went out were trying to figure out what was out there. Columbus himself made four voyages before he died in 1506, and there were at least eight other major voyages in the same period from Spain and Portugal. In part, they were trying to determine the limits of the Treaty of, of Tordesillas of 1494, which placed uh, limits on each country in terms of their Atlantic exploration. And there were a dozen or more Spanish expeditions in the first two decades of the 16th century. Most of those voyages explored the area around the Caribbean, Mexico, northern South America. But a few headed south along the coast of Brazil, which was claimed by Portugal, because they were trying to find the southern end of South America and the southern end of what Portugal claimed. We know about Ferdinand Magellan. He was a Portuguese mariner sailing for Spain and discovered the strait that was named for him in 1520. And then he sailed across the vast Pacific Ocean uh, to the islands off the coast of Southeast Asia. Magellan himself died in the Philippines 
The remnant of his expedition got back to Spain in 1522, completing the first voyage around the world, but they hadn't planned to do that. They had planned to sail back eastward across the Pacific, but they couldn't find the winds and currents to do so. So they had to continue west, past India, South Africa, uh, in order to return to Spain. The conditions that Magellan's expedition had experienced in the South Atlantic were extreme, and conditions of sea and winds in the strait can be extreme. That and the extremely long voyage from Spain through the strait and then on to Asia discouraged the use of that route uh, as a regular trade route, so that was disappointing. The Spanish government assumed that those same difficulties would discourage Spain's rivals from attempting to follow Magellan's route. And although there were a few other Spanish expeditions to the strait in the 1520s, further exploration of the Pacific was organized from Mexico or Peru, which made much better sense. Spain was already well established in Mexico by the 1520s after defeating the Aztec Empire and in Peru by the mid-1530s after defeating the Inca Empire. So Pacific exploration proceeded from the Americas rather than directly from Spain. All of this general history is might seem to have very little to do with the South Atlantic, but it's a necessary background to understanding it. Although Spaniards founded a city, in Buenos Aires on the River Plate in 1536, the settlement soon had to be abandoned. Asuncion was founded in 1537 and managed to hang on, serving as a base for further exploration, but exploration of the interior. And in general, Spain didn't do much to consolidate its claims in the area south of Brazil. The story was far different on the western side of South America. Um, towns, widely separated, but major towns in Cartagena, on the Caribbean, Quito, 1534, Lima, 1535, Santiago, 1541, were founded as major cities as Spanish exploration proceeded toward the south. And then things changed with the discovery of immensely rich deposits of silver at Potosi in today's Bolivia. In uh, shortly before the mid-16th century. And that reinforced the primacy of the western part of South America uh, in Spain's uh, empire. And at the same time, the transatlantic trade to both Mexico, which they called New Spain, and South America by way of the Isthmus of Panama was growing exponentially in the 16th century. So all of this explains why the South Atlantic was not a major priority. Spain's European rivals, of course, were anxious to force themselves into the Atlantic trade, despite Spanish claims of a monopoly, and to establish colonies of their own. But the government in Madrid continued to think that the perils of the South Atlantic and the Strait would keep interlopers from becoming a threat to the lands on the west side of the continent, in other words, by sailing through the Strait. There were Spanish inland expeditions from Lima and Asuncion uh, in the 1540s, from Lima going southeast, from Asuncion going northwest, and a few more towns were founded inland from the River Plate in the 1550s. But overall, the South Atlantic was neglected in terms of defense and settlement really as late as 1580. Uh, and that's the date when Buenos Aires was definitely re-founded, and that is uh, part of the background to the Armada of the Strait. For the benefit of our listeners, then, um, can you speak briefly about the overall importance of the Spanish Armada in the same period? Uh, yes, of course. The, the word Armada simply means an armed fleet, and there was no single Spanish Armada in the 16th century. Instead, there were various fleets or armadas that were brought together for, for specific purposes, by 1580, a more permanent system was being developed, and what, what the Spaniards call the Armada del Mar Oceano, the Armada of the Ocean Sea or the Atlantic Ocean, was at the top of the hierarchy. My book is about the so-called Armada del Estrecho, the Armada of the Strait, which was the fleet brought together in 1581 to sail to Brazil and the Strait of Magellan. But when its mission ended in 1584, it was disbanded. Now, you've noted that the Armada of the Strait um, has been largely ignored by historians. Um, why is this, do you think? 
Well, I honestly don't know. At the time, it was quite important, and the documentation for the Armada is extensive, so historians haven't had the excuse that they were lacking sources to study it. I suspect that it hasn't attracted the attention it deserves because of confusion among historians about its mission and its leadership, which I deal with in the book. So as I said in the introduction, uh, Philip II decided to, to dispatch the Armada to control and fortify the entrance to the Straits of Magellan in 1581, and this was in response to reports of Francis Drake's incursions in the Spanish South Atlantic in the late 1570s. Can you outline the threat Drake presented to Spanish interests? Drake presented an enormous threat. He presented the first real challenge to the monopoly that Spain claimed in most of the Americas, virtually everything but, but Brazil, which was in the Portuguese sphere. When Drake defied the challenges of the South Atlantic and sailed through the Strait of Magellan in August of 1578, he potentially opened up the whole of Spanish Peru to anyone daring enough to follow his route. And until then, as I've said, the Spanish crown had relied on the forces of nature to protect Peru from direct assault. And can you tell us about the other narratives that exist for this uh, South Atlantic Armada? Ah, that's where the confusion about the Armada's mission and leadership comes in. There are extensive official records and reports about the ships, men, supplies, and logistics for the Armada. But the only real narratives were virtually all written by Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, the government, uh, governor designate of the colony he had proposed for the Strait of Magellan, as you mentioned. Sarmiento wrote thousands of pages of letters, reports, and narratives about the various stages of the expedition, many of which have been published and some of which have been translated into English, or at least excerpted. And until now, historians reading what's out there available for them, uh, until now, Sarmiento's version of events and personalities has dominated the sources that historians have consulted about the expedition. And speaking about the new account, uh, which you have uh, translated and edited um, by Pedro de Rada, what can you tell us about de Rada? Rada served as the chief scribe or escribano mayor of the Armada of the Strait. His duties included keeping detailed records of all the official events of the voyage, recording the consultations held among the high officials in the fleet, recording the instructions and rules issued by the commander-in-chief of the fleet, who was known as the Captain General, or Capitan General, and so on. There were thousands of officials like Rada in the Spanish fleet system, uh, because there were hundreds of ships that took part in the transatlantic trade toward the end of the 16th century. Unfortunately, I was not able to find much about him personally, or about his career before or after his service in the Armada of the Strait. But I do know that he had experience both in the fleets and in his role as a scribe. And um, how important then is this newly translated account, do you think? Um, how does it complement or challenge what we already know about the Spanish South Atlantic in the 16th century? I think Rada's account is crucial for an understanding of the Armada of the Strait and his place in the history of the struggle for the South Atlantic. He also tells us a great deal about the situation in Portuguese Brazil at the time. When Spain and Portugal agreed to divide up future claims in the Americas in 1494, Brazil fell into the Portuguese sphere. Thereafter, apart from trying to, uh, to ascertain how far south the Portuguese sphere extended in the South Atlantic coast, Spanish voyages tried to avoid encroaching on those Portuguese claims. As a consequence, little was known about Brazil and its coasts and harbors, even in official circles in Spain, for most of the 16th century. That all changed when the young king of Portugal, Sebastian I, died on a foolhardy crusade to North Africa in 1578. King Philip of Spain was Sebastian's uncle. His, his sister was Sebastian's mother. And Philip was in a good legal and military position to claim the throne of Portugal after his nephew died. Philip made good those claims in 1580, and the Armada of the Strait was Philip's attempt to prove to his new subjects in Portugal and Brazil that he would defend their interests as well as Spanish interests in the Americas. And it's interesting to note that de despite the Armada's official name, 
it actually spent nearly all of its time in Brazil. Rada's account tells us a lot about Rio de Janeiro, Bahia, San Vicente, Pernambuco, and various other places in Portuguese Brazil, as well as about the inhabitants of those places, local officials, natural resources, and so on. So the Armada of the Strait just as easily could have been called the Armada of Brazil. Why did you decide to transcribe and translate this work? When I learned about the Huntington Library in California, uh, that they had acquired Rada's manuscript, it was nearly 20 years ago, I was intrigued for a number of reasons. For a start, Rada's account is the official record of the expedition by its official notary. Why had it not been in Spanish state archives? Instead, it was evidently in private hands for centuries, perhaps from soon after he wrote it. Although we can trace its ownership back as far as the 18th century, I was not able to find out its history before then, so that remains a mystery. However, even without that history, that provenance, Rada's account provides another point of view, an official voice, if you will, to compare with the other records and personal accounts that have long been available. Can you describe the importance of primary source materials such as the Rada's account? Um, for listeners who may not be too familiar with the work that uh, historians actually do? Well, primary sources, as we call them, are documents that were produced at the same time as the events that we historians are trying to understand and explain. That's why they're so important to our work. Primary sources might include official documents, letters, financial accounts, and so on that relate to the event. In the case of Rada's narrative, it was produced by a royal official on official business, so we can at least hope that the information it contains is accurate and unbiased. Nonetheless, just like eyewitness testimony in a legal context today, primary sources don't necessarily tell us everything we need to know. Even more important, the information the sources provide may not be, quote, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, close quote, uh, to quote from an oath that witnesses in courts in the United States are supposed to follow. The primary sources that historians use have to be compared with as much other information as possible so that we can judge how accurate the source may be. That said, they are still the most crucial and precious uh, information that we have. And of course, transcription is a large part of obtaining this primary source material, particularly from the 16th century in Spain. Um, so can we speak briefly about the process of transcription and paleography uh, for a moment? Um, what kinds of challenges does a scholar face when transcribing and then translating, in your case, um, a lengthy manuscript uh, such as this? Well, most of the primary sources produced in the 16th century were written by hand, not surprisingly. Not all of them. There were some printed documents. And the handwriting varied depending on who was doing the writing. Scribes and notaries used many abbreviations in Spanish, and they didn't follow modern rules of punctuation and spelling. Uh, far from it. And that poses a challenge. That certainly applies to Rada's manuscript as well. But his handwriting, unlike many others I have encountered, is beautifully formed and easy to decipher as long as you can read cursive script. It's a miracle how beautiful his hand is. The handwriting in many official Spanish documents can be quite difficult to decipher, as I'm, as I'm sure you know, Edward. I regularly teach seminars in Spanish paleography, literally old handwriting which means documents written before the 18th century. Anyone who wants to do serious research with handwritten sources has to be able to read and transcribe those sources. Once they learn the abbreviations and the various types of handwriting, they can read virtually any document produced in Spain or Latin America that they need for their research, though some are clearly more difficult than others. But the forms, the legal forms of official documents are the same throughout the Hispanic world, and that is a blessing. Trans yeah, but translating those documents adds another layer of effort. Uh, the Spanish language took on its modern form earlier than other European languages, so if you know modern Spanish, the documents are not as difficult to understand as, for example, Shakespearean English to a modern uh, reader of English. 
Some translators of Spanish try to stay as close as possible to the structure of sentences and so on in the original document. When I translate, I tend to privilege clarity over structure so that readers can follow the sense of the documents more, more clearly, more easily. That means that I break extremely long sentences into two or more parts, and I always add modern punctuation. Nonetheless, I try to stay as close as possible to the meaning in the original document, and that presents a challenge. Uh, it, it, it's easier, for, for example, to just um, mindlessly reproduce in English what the Spanish says, but that often produces uh, fractured syntax, makes the meaning very difficult to uh, get to. So before the interview began, we discussed briefly the challenges faced by young scholars uh, learning the craft of paleography. Um, and as an expert in Spanish paleography and translation, what do you think is the most important advice you could give somebody who's just beginning to learn the craft? Well, this I'll keep this short. Take your time and develop the skills you need to do a proper job. If you rush, especially if you try to skim through a document before you have those skills, you can make serious errors of interpretation, and it's very hard to go back and correct them if you didn't get it right the first time. So uh, let's return to the Yermat of the Strait then. Um, the other, uh, the other narrative you mentioned was written by Pedro Sarmiento, who seems to have been a, a fairly colourful character. Um, can you tell us about him? Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa was a Spaniard, born in Alcalá de Henares, near Madrid. He built his career in the rough-and-tumble atmosphere that followed the Spanish conquest of the Americas. He was in New Spain by 1555, as far as we know. But he fled to Peru two years later though it is not clear why. Uh, he was well-versed in astronomy, in history, in geography, in cosmography. Uh, where he acquired that knowledge is not clear. He ran afoul of the Spanish Inquisition in Lima at least twice, but the inquisitors didn't find enough evidence to convict him, and it's not clear uh, what his uh, crime was, and I have not studied this. But Sarmiento evidently became a valued advisor to the interim viceroy of Peru, uh, Don Lope García de Castro, uh, who, who was in office from 1565 to 69. And he advised, in part, sending an expedition into the Pacific in search of the legendary Solomon Islands. Well, instead of appointing Sarmiento as captain general, uh, however, the viceroy chose his own nephew, Alvaro de Mendaña, and he sent Sarmiento along as the expedition's cosmographer. The voyage was successful, um, returning in 1567, but during that voyage, Sarmiento quarreled with the 25-year-old Mendaña from start to finish, and afterwards maintained a protracted legal battle against him. Nonetheless, Sarmiento continued to serve as a soldier in Peru. He helped to defeat Inca resistance to Spanish rule in Peru. And he gained the support of a new viceroy, very important viceroy, Francisco Álvarez de Toledo, uh, who was in office from 1569 to 81. The viceroy urged Sarmiento to write a history of the Incas in 1572, which chronicled and justified the Spanish conquest. We still use that work of Sarmiento's as an invaluable account of the uh, Incan people and of the conquest in general. Sarmiento continued to work as a cosmographer in Peru until Viceroy Toledo sent him to the Strait after Drake's raids uh, in pursuit of Drake in 1579. It was not clear where Drake had gone after he, uh, after he raided uh, the uh, Peruvian coast, and the notion was that he would turn around and go immediately back to England. So Viceroy Toledo sent Sarmiento south, uh, and uh, he went through the strait uh, from west to east and then back to Spain. Um, but despite Sarmiento's undoubted learning and intelligence, 
and his experience as a soldier and cosmographer, there is no way that he could match the social status of uh, Diego Flores de Valdez or Flores's decades of naval service to the crown. And that is the crux of the rivalry that developed between them. So can you tell us a little more then about why Sarmiento was at odds with the Captain General of the Armada, uh, Diego Flores de Valdez? Well, as I, as I hinted, um, if we had to use one word, it would be jealousy, or another word would be resentment. The enmity between the two men began with the king's decision to appoint Flores as Captain General of the Armada of the Strait. There is no question, reading all of the documents, from that moment on, Sarmiento was Flores' enemy. Sarmiento's biographers suggest that he deserved the post because he was the one who persuaded the king to send the armada to Brazil in the strait. Nonetheless, Flores was the logical choice for the position, given the prior careers of both men. Flores had served the crown at sea for nearly 30 years by 1580. He was a trusted naval advisor to King Philip, a well-known quantity. Sarmiento was an unknown quantity in many ways, with very little experience at sea, lacking in the kind of social distinction that captains general needed to have to command large fleets. There was no way that the king would put him in charge of of an expedition that started out with 23 ships and some 3,500 persons. There was just no way Sarmiento had the background to qualify for such a job, but he thought he did. The planning and preparation for this expedition uh, took place at an exceptionally complicated time for Philip II, as we as we talked about earlier, who was trying to consolidate his newly found authority in uh, Portugal. Um, how far down on his list of priorities do you think was his decision to equip an armada? Well, the priorities uh, was a long list indeed, but as soon as Drake's raids were known, um, there had to be a response. And at the same time that Philip was making good his claim to the Portuguese throne, Drake had raided both Portuguese and Spanish shipping and settlements from the Atlantic Islands to the west coast of the Americas. Uh, The government in Madrid was stunned by these peacetime attacks, and Philip's government knew uh, that they, they had to respond as quickly as possible, as forcefully as possible. Sarmiento had been sent down the coast of Peru by the viceroy to try to follow Drake through the strait, which he was nowhere near the strait at that point. But he arrived back in Spain just at the right time to persuade the king not only to respond to Drake um, in a military way, but to plant a colony in the strait, to build fortifications in the strait, and that that would be the perfect way to uh, respond to Drake's raids. So the armada that the king planned would do a whole lot of things, or at least The king hoped it would, and in his instructions to Flores, this is what he said. He wanted to bolster the defenses of Portuguese Brazil and Spanish Chile. He he transported a major contingent of uh, soldiers and their officers for Chile, as well as uh, going to Brazil in the strait. And they were also supposed to build forts in the strait and plant Sarmiento's colony. But that was not the primary purpose of the Armada, although Sarmiento claimed that it was. That was one of the things they would do, but the major issues were bolstering the defenses of Brazil and making sure that Brazil was was loyal to Philip. That said, the Armada of the Strait strained the organization and, and organizational and logistical capabilities of the Spanish monarchy at that point to its limit. Pierre Chonu, the great historian of of Spain's Atlantic fleets, even suggested that preparing the armada of the strait exceeded the capabilities not only of the Spanish monarchy, but of 16th century technologies in general, uh, given the demand for ships and men and supplies at the time. As as I mentioned, uh, Spain's two transatlantic fleets were employing some 200 ships and thousands of men each year by 1580, and suddenly a new fleet had to be mounted, which initially at least had 23 ships and 3,500 people. That is an enormous additional burden, but it had to be done. 
it had to be done. This was not an afterthought. Um, it was very, very difficult. But, but from the point of view of the Spanish government, it had to be done. And was it possible for Philip to take advantage of Portuguese naval resources uh, for Spanish missions in South America? Well, it depended on the mission. Uh, certainly for this one, since its major aim was, was Brazil, uh, the king relied in part on Portuguese resources. There were a couple of ships, as I recall, that were um, gathered from Lisbon. Most of the supplies were uh, gathered around Seville, uh, as usual. Um, but once the fleet got to Brazil, um, Captain General Flores relied very heavily on cooperation, on gaining the cooperation of Portuguese officials to feed the fleet, to arrange for the settlers, to uh, survive until they were deposited at the strait, and then ultimately to carry out military missions uh, in Brazil itself. So Portugal, especially Lisbon, was uh, immediately integrated into a broader Iberian strategy of, of defense um, for the global monarchies that uh, Portugal and Spain represented. Um, in fact, the, the uh, Armada of the Ocean Sea was almost immediately shifted to be based in Lisbon because that made sense for, for what they were doing. So how difficult was it then to navigate the southern continent and around the Magellan Straits? Um, was it much more difficult than, say, navigating to Mexico and the Caribbean? It was absolutely more difficult, partly because it was not known. Uh, but the conditions in the South Atlantic include some of the worst weather and conditions of wind and sea on the face of the earth. And by contrast, the routes between Europe and the Caribbean and Mexico though they presented their difficulties, were well established early on in the 16th century. By Columbus's first voyage, the basic wind and current patterns were known. As you're moving down the coast of, of Brazil and points farther south, um, things had to be learned um, on every voyage. We know, as I say, that wind and weather could pose problems in the north as well, especially in hurricane season, uh, as we are aware right now. But they were known quantities compared to the largely unknown conditions in the South Atlantic at the time. So every voyage that went south um, brought back fresh information, new information that subsequent fleets could learn from. There hadn't been that many fleets. So, the, for example, the Armada of the Strait wasn't even sure if Buenos Aires was uh, refounded by that time. It had been in 1580, and they found that out, but they weren't sure when they set out. What kind of conditions would the Armada crew have faced then at sea? Um, can you describe maybe the life of a Spanish seaman, the typical Spanish seaman in maybe the 16th century Atlantic? Well, to say that life at sea in those days was hard is, is a gross understatement. Uh, as many have said, it was a life of hard work, cramped living conditions, bad food, and sometimes harsh discipline. Periods dominated by daily routine, occasional boredom, alternated with moments of sheer terror. If a bad storm came up and threatened the ship and everyone on board, or if the ship came under attack uh, by pirates or uh, political enemies, or if it ran aground in unfamiliar waters, all of these were, were very real hazards. Even so, for many poor men and boys, not just in Spain, but, but everywhere in Europe, life as a sailor offered certain advantages. For a start, you were fed at someone else's expense. That, that is not minor. And if you did your job well, there were opportunities for career advancement. Uh, and on the merchant fleets of Spain, at least, there was the possibility of engaging in small-scale trade in the Americas. Um, some sailors would forego their wine ration, for example. And it, this was recorded in the books that they had not had their wine ration. And then when they got to the Americas, that wine would be sold for their benefit. Uh, or they could do other sorts of small-scale trade. But that's on the merchant fleets. On a military fleet, sailing into unknown waters, uh, you had almost no opportunity for, for profit. And it was uh, difficult to decide where your advantage lay, whether you should sign up or not for such a fleet. There's a, there's a wonderful Portuguese expression from the time, isn't there? Um, 
si quieres aprender a orar, entra en mar. Or, if you want to learn how to pray, go to sea. <laughs> the one that I love is, what is it? I think Anacarsis from the from ancient uh, Mediterranean, that there are three kinds of, of uh, existence, the living, the dead, and those who sail the sea. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it was often difficult to recruit sufficient numbers for the Atlantic fleets, wasn't it? Um, why was this so? Well, every major maritime power in Europe had difficulty recruiting sufficient crew members at one time or another. If you had a lot of trade and then you got involved in a naval war, suddenly you have uh, enormous demand for anyone who knows how to sail. For Spain, as I mentioned, the sheer numbers of men required for the regular trading fleets to the Americas made it difficult to fill out uh, crews, particularly military crews because they often weren't paid as well. They didn't have the opportunities for trade. In certain cases, they knew they were headed into uh, a, a wartime situation. Uh, that made it harder. Um, the Armada of the Strait found it particularly difficult to find sufficient men for all of these reasons. But I would say in particular because it was headed for the strait. Um, even though the destination was supposed to be secret, it was widely known in Seville and beyond that the fleet was headed down there and that it was likely to encounter enemies, that it was certainly going to encounter horrible conditions at sea, and it was highly unlikely to offer any opportunities for profit. So in that situation, recruiters had to offer bonuses for signing on that were far higher than usual. And in this context, it's worth noting that Spanish armadas rarely resorted to forced enlistment, press gangs or other, other coercion, except in cases of extreme need. Uh, the Armada of the Strait was one of those cases. Uh, some 280 men returning on fleets from the Americas uh, just in time for the prep of the uh, Armada of the Strait, were forced to join the Armada in the summer of 1581. And that meant some 29% of the total crewmen. That is highly unusual in Spanish fleets. Um, and it is an indication that the whole fleet system was strained to the limit by the Armada of the Strait. The Armada makes its way to the South Atlantic in December 1581. And it lands in Brazil then in March 1582. They have a layover there until October of that year, which was, uh, it wasn't entirely smooth, as you recount in the work. Um, can you describe what happened during this time? Um, and how does Derrada's version differ from that of Sarmiento's version? Well, it's important to remember that Brazil was not densely settled, shall we say. And the Portuguese had not done too much with uh, Brazil um, up to that point. The town of Rio de Janeiro had no more than about 400 Portuguese householders in 1580, and probably no more than 2,000 people in all. The Armada arrived and added another 2,400 people, more or less, uh, among them several hundred settlers that Sarmiento had recruited for his colony at the Strait. So you're more than doubling the number of people in that uh, small urban area. Food had to be procured from near and far for all of them. Shelters had to be rented or built. Ships had to be repaired and careened. A whole range of problems had to be overcome during that eight-month layover. And the eight-month layover was waiting for proper weather to even attempt the strait. You don't go down during the um, winter in the South Atlantic. Rada notes that Captain Flores maintained generally good discipline and punished wrongdoers among his men, as well as maintaining good relations with local authorities and the local population. Uh, that's no small feat, uh, given the numbers involved, given the fact that you've got hundreds of sailors uh, and soldiers on land interacting with local peoples. Things were bound to go wrong. Rada says that when things went wrong, they were punished. Okay. Sarmiento wrote an endless series of complaints about the conduct of everybody connected with the Armada. And he blamed General Flores for virtually all of that and demanded 
that he be much more rigorous in punishing any kind of wrongdoing. Clearly, the layover was not without friction. It was not without incidents of bad behavior. It seems likely that Flores had decided that imposing a harsher disciplinary regime on his men would create more problems than it solved. And in fact, when at, at, at a couple of junctures, when Sarmiento's endless complaints um, essentially forced Flores to take harsher measures, the people involved didn't blame Flores, they blamed Sarmiento. And one of, Sarmi one of Flores' captains even, even urged Sarmiento should be tried and executed um, because he was creating so many problems. So the Armada eventually attempts to enter the Straits of Magellan. Um, can you tell us about this, about these attempts? Well, the layover was designed to wait until the uh, southern winter was over and better conditions at sea was, were supposed to present themselves, but they, uh, they didn't. Uh, the Armada overall made three attempts to enter the strait, uh, to deposit Sarmiento's settlers, to begin building the forts that he had urged the king to create. The first two attempts failed. Uh, they were defeated by storms, by winds, currents in the South Atlantic. Several ships were lost. The rest were battered so severely that they had to turn back for repairs. Um, given the testimony that Rada includes, there is no question that this is accurate, that the ships were battered, that every captain who attended the consultations that Flores called said, I can't go any farther. If we have to sail without coming to port and, and repairing the ship, we will all sink and die. There's, there is no question. And so they turned, they turned back, both the first and then the, the, the second attempt. When Sarmiento wrote about this, he wrote that, oh, the ships were in fine shape and it was just a lack of heart and, and cowardice. Uh, and greed to get back and enjoy uh, the fruits of, of uh, royal favor that caused the ships to turn back. Uh, it's, it's a complete denial of the situation as it actually evolved. Uh, the remnant of the Armada returned to Rio de Janeiro to regroup. And from there, the third, uh, as it turns out, successful attempt was launched uh, a bit later. Um, what do we know about Edward Fenton's exploits in the region? Edward Fenton was an Englishman who led an expedition in 1582, backed by some very important people in uh, England, including Francis Drake. Its mission was ostensibly to sail south and eastward to China. Uh, but in fact, there were enough people on board who aimed to replicate Francis Drake's route through the strait that that, in fact, is what they ended up trying to do. Fenton had trade goods with him. He had merchants with him. He tried to establish trade with several Portuguese settlements in Brazil. But the Armada had arrived by then. Portuguese officials had, to had been told by General Flores not to trade with any English because of Drake's recent raids. And Fenton's attempts to initiate trade were thwarted. He captured a small ship that was carrying Franciscan friars um, that left Rio de Janeiro, headed for the Rio de la Plata. And Fenton learned from the friars about as much as he could about the armada of the strait. He was told about its condition when it left Rio with about 16 ships, he didn't know that it had subsequently been divided up into a couple of different contingents, in other words, uh, smaller contingents, but Fenton only had three ships. And he evidently came to the conclusion that he would be badly uh, outgunned and, and uh, out, outmanned if he encountered the Armada. And it was clear that the Armada was headed for the strait. Um, Fenton had a variety of, of, of advisors. They had different views about what ought to be done. And there were some who were very uh, uh, 
committed to the notion of replicating Drake's uh, voyage through the strait. He got as far as just north of the Rio de la Plata with three ships, but at that point a consultation made him decide to turn back north to regroup for a while. The third ship that happened to be commanded, very small ship, by a cousin of Francis Drake's named John Drake, deserted Fenton at that point and sailed into the Rio de la Plata alone. So Fenton was left with only two ships. He turned back north along the Brazilian coast, had an encounter with three Spanish ships, three of the damaged ships that had been uh, uh, decreed unworthy or un unable to make the second attempt at the strait. He uh, defeated these ships, but then sailed away and eventually returned to England, uh, having accomplished none of his aims. Uh, in English historiography, Fenton's um, expedition is one of the ones known as the Troublesome Voyage. That's right. Uh, and there's actually an English translation by the Hackler Society in that as well, isn't there? There is indeed, with, with many of the... Um, uh, many of the people on board wrote at least partial diaries, and that's what the, the Hacklet uh, volume is about. It, it gets many things far wrong about Fenton's encounter uh, with uh, a, a contingent of the Armada, uh, but it, it is valuable for many other reasons. So what happened then during the subsequent attempts of the Armada to enter the strait? Well, after the two failed attempts at the strait, Flores uh, and whatever was left returned to Rio de Janeiro. At that point, Flores deputized his second in command to make a third attempt with the remaining settlers. And they finally arrived at the strait in early February 1584. However, by then, it was clear, by earlier than that, it was clear that the narrowest part of the strait was far too wide to defend by building forts on either side. Sarmiento had said it would be easy, uh, ideally suited to have two defensive forts, but he had greatly underestimated that gap. Although he spent considerable time in the strait in 1579 when he was uh, traversing it from west to east. It's not clear why he greatly underestimated it, either uh, a triumph of, of hope over, over reality or whether he deliberately underestimated it. But everyone, in uh, every officer uh, in the armada of the strait who saw that narrowest point said there is no way that this is going to work. So that was, uh, that was abandoned at that point. Sarmiento continued to think that that was possible, and he was determined to plant that colony. So Flores, the second-in-command, took the remaining settlers and Sarmiento to the strait where they arrived in February of 84. Meanwhile, Flores himself had sailed north from Rio de Janeiro to the capital at Bahia, and there he worked with local officials and recruited a large force of Portuguese settlers and their Indian uh, allies and some slaves. And they sailed farther north to oust French interlopers from Paraíba on the northeast coast of Brazil. They had come in to trade for Brazil wood. They did not have the permission of Portuguese authorities. They were, they were clearly interloping on, on Portuguese claims, and they were fortifying the area, arming local Indians uh, who were hostile to the Portuguese. And Flores organized this uh, uh, a force to go and combat them, uh, which, in fact, was, uh, was successful. And all of this time, of course, Sarmiento is continuing to undermine Flores. Why was he, do you think he was so insistent on undermining him, even at this point? Well, he was desperate to succeed. Uh, the, the crown is the source of all uh, awards and benefits and social distinction. Sarmiento wanted that desperately for himself. He was governor-designate of the colony he planned for the strait, but he had no official post until that colony was established. That's the way it works. He was governor-designate, but only of the colony once it was founded. If that colony succeeded, he hoped to gain favor, further positions from King Philip, 
um, if he didn't succeed or if the colony was, or the plans to plant a colony were abandoned, he had nothing. And he had put up his own money to recruit the settlers, to rent the ships, to supply them. Um, this was, the stakes for him were very high. And anything that delayed the founding of the colony made him furious. His, his writings are not temperate at all. They, you, can, you can hear the fury if you read his full uh, writings, which I have done. Many of the excerpts that have been published kind of skip over his diatribes and just, just have the raw narrative. And that completely eliminates the tone of, of his writings. And I think it eliminates uh, any possibility of really understanding Sarmiento. So he was furious and he took out his frustration and his, his fury on General Flores and accused him of every sort of character flaw, dereliction of duty. He also wrote lengthy denunciations of virtually everyone else, including the ship's pilot, whom he had recruited and demanded uh, that he become the chief pilot. He uh, denounced the settlers whom he had personally recruited. Uh, everyone was against him. Um, so he thought, and, and by his own actions, he almost ensured that that would, that would be true. Um, the colony was planted. He became its governor. But tragically, the colony was a complete failure uh, doomed from the start by the harsh climate uh, in uh, the Strait of Magellan is not a hospitable uh, part of the world. Um, the first place that they landed, there was no fresh water and no wood. That is uh, fatal for anyone trying to plant a colony. And it was impossible to grow food there. Within a few years, all but two of the 300 people planted at the Strait had died of starvation and exposure. And a subsequent English expedition that went through dubbed it uh, rather nastily Port Hunger. But it is, it is a major tragedy, a major tragedy. So Flores, for his part, then, did he manage to complete his mission by fortifying the Strait? No, obviously not. For Sarmiento, that was the main part of the mission. But uh, even in the planning stages, fortifying the strait was only one of the objectives of the Armada, and it proved to be impossible and impracticable to carry out. Uh, Batista Antonelli, who would go on to be a major planner and, and builder of fortifications all over Spanish America, was in fact accompanying the Armada of the strait, and he was supposed to supervise the building of those forts. But as soon as it looked to be impossible um, and impracticable to do, he was sent back to Spain. So Flores failed in that part of, the, uh, of his charge, but understandably so. And he wrote a, a, a telling uh, letter to Philip II. And he doesn't blame Flores, excuse me, he doesn't blame Sarmiento as well he might have done. But he just says something like, it would seem your majesty has been misinformed about the uh, narrowness of the gap um, in the, uh, the narrowest part of the strait, and it is impossible to build the forts that you wanted uh, to build. Um, Flores and the Armada did succeed admirably in, in bolstering the defenses of Portuguese Brazil, however. Uh, several forts were built, which hadn't been uh, in existence before. He was successful in securing the loyalty of the colony to King Philip by demonstrating